Lead the way and I will follow. Why should I fear? I am on a royal mission. I am in the service of the king of kings. And to Africa she went. Uh, Paul is going to do that with Timothy. He's going to encourage him because remember he's dealing with some great struggles. Uh, false teachers are coming into the church at Ephesus there and teaching some things counter. And Paul wants to encourage Timothy. So he's writing from prison in Rome. And he tells Timothy to remember some certain things. Now we're going to look at verse 8 again. Uh, last time, I promise. Uh, we're going to move on. We're going to get into verse 9. But uh, it's just deep truths that we have out of this verse. So stand with me as we read 2 Timothy, 2nd chapter, verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. It never disappoints. It certainly convicts. It teaches. It instructs. It encourages. And Lord, may we be encouraged by the truths today as your people. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, look at verse 9 first. Then we're going to step back into verse 8. In verse 9, Paul talks about the power of God's Word. And the truth is, every time we choose to believe God's Word, to pick it up, read it, share it, believe it, act according to it, we are engaging in spiritual warfare. Paul knew that, and that's what he experienced. In fact, he says here in verse 9, that he suffered trouble as an evildoer. Even bonds, he's put in prison. In a Roman prison, Paul was writing this letter. And he was there simply because he preached the gospel. And notice Paul says that he was treated, suffered trouble as an evildoer. Uh, that comes from a word that means malefactor. It's only used here and then in the Gospel of Luke where it's used of the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus. They are described in Luke, and there's also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. Uh, so they, these guys were bad guys. They were, it means to be evil, uh, to be depraved, bad to the core. And of course, one of those thieves is going to repent and call upon Jesus, and he'll get saved. So it's never too late. Make it now. Make that decision now. Don't put it off. But we can always do that. Well, Paul was grouped kind of in the same class. Jesus was too. That's why he was crucified between them. Uh, Isaiah says he is numbered with the transgressors. But Paul says because he is treated as an evildoer, he is bound up. But notice what he says. But the word of God is not bound. It is not bound up. He is but God's word is not. 
You know, Satan did his best to lock up Christians. Still is. That's what he likes to do. Likes to persecute God's people. And if you remember, uh, I think Satan used Paul when he was a Pharisee in his zeal to persecute Christians. That's what he did. In fact, when we see in the book of Acts, save your place here, but just turn back to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Chapter 8, book of Acts, we find a much different Paul. His name then is Saul. Uh, verse 1 says, Saul was consenting uh, unto his death. It's the death of Stephen. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church. was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad uh, throughout. Well, we need to move chapter 9. We'll get the right chapter yet. We don't want to read about Stephen. Chapter 9. And Saul, they kind of look the same, don't they? Yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So that was, he liked to do that. Persecute Christians, bind them up. And limit the gospel. And isn't it interesting that on the Damascus Road, Paul would meet Jesus Christ. And he'd become a follower and a preacher of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Satan couldn't stop it. God took one of his best servants and made him his servant. So Satan now figures, well, I. Maybe I'll lock up the Apostle Paul, one of God's greatest servants. I'll get him locked up in prison. And you know what? God still used that. Half our New Testament is written by Paul, and he's going to write many of those letters while sitting in a prison cell. Uh, they're just marvelous what God did. And as Paul says, God's word is not locked up. Uh, Dr. John Phillips says, no power on earth or in hell can shackle the word of God. And it can't. There's not a prison that can be built to lock up the Bible. It's going to get out. You just can't lock it up. No way it's going to happen. The Bible tells us that the word of God is quick. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Even dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now in Ephesians 6, we find the armor of God. And one of the interesting pictures is in verse 17, where Paul will write there to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So that's telling us God's word, the Bible, is a weapon, an offensive weapon. It is used to attack. And we're to use it in such a way. So it's a weapon of offense. But what's also interesting is notice who it belongs to. Who is holding it? The Holy Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So that's telling me no one, no power is going to take this sword from the Holy Spirit. 
Man, you're in a real fight there if you're going to do that. That's just not going to happen. And I like that. So when we take God's word and we're preaching it and we're sharing it, and we're teaching it, and we're living by it, and we're into it, the Holy Spirit stands with us holding it. That's powerful. That encourages me that even me, a, a, a man of flesh, a human who fails, that God can still use his Holy Spirit and help me use his word in a powerful way. And, and I've seen that. I've done funerals where the person that uh, died really didn't have much of a church background, if any. And, of course, that means most of the people you got in that uh, funeral service, well, most of them have never seen a church either. And that's a tough place to do a funeral and, and, and preach God's word. And I can feel like there's just a huge wall out there uh, falling on, to me, deaf ears. There's a, there's a struggle going on. And yet it always surprises me when I finish that service that I'll have people come up and say, thank you for encouraging me today. From God's word. That's the Holy Spirit. He uses it in a powerful way. Psalm 147 tells us that he, he the Lord sends forth his commandment upon earth. His word runneth very swiftly. And it does. When we look back at the book of Acts, now I want you to follow with me. Turn back to Acts chapter 4. We'll look at a number of verses here. We'll begin at Acts 4, uh, verse 31. Uh, one of the great pictures in the book of Acts is the word of God breaking boundary after boundary, crossing into many uh, lives of people, that it's basically unhindered. In chapter 4 of Acts, verse 31, early churches get gets together and they have a prayer meeting. It says, when they prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Then turn to Acts chapter 6. Verse 7. Notice what Luke tells us here. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. But the word of God increased there in Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 12. Verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied, even in the midst of persecution. Uh, Acts 15, chapter 15. Verse 35, we see, it says, Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And then in Acts 19, chapter 19, verse 
verse 17. Uh, an interesting incident takes place in the previous verses with the sons of Sceva uh, that were using the name of Jesus to cast out demons. And they really didn't know Jesus. They're just using his name because it worked. And they get in trouble with that. The, the, the demons attack them. Well, we pick up in verse 17. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together, burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. And then verse 20, in the midst of all that going on, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed in that midst. So we just see that all through the book of Acts, uh, God's word is unhindered. And it's interesting, the book of Acts, the very last Greek word of that book is unhindered. And that's what God's word does. It is unhindered. Uh, Dr. John MacArthur, uh, he points out that in, in uh, Rome, there were one time 600 miles of catacombs underneath the city. He said mainly these were built and dug out by the early Christians in the first uh, 300 years. And he says they would meet there for worship because of persecution. And he says over a 300-year period, there's maybe 4 million of them uh, buried in those catacombs uh, under Rome. What's interesting is that a common inscription that is found on the walls of those catacombs from that time, here it is. The word of God is not bound. Isn't that amazing? It is not bound. China can try to keep out Bibles, but they're still pouring in. I mean, Christianity is growing there in an amazing way. In fact, they're trying to remove crosses from churches. Isn't that amazing? And, and of course, one pastor's wife was died trying to prevent a bulldozer from leveling their church. Uh, Muslim nations cannot stop the Bible, God's Word. Uh, I found it interesting that we had uh, some students that came from the Middle East. I'm not going to mention their names, not going to mention the country they came from to protect them. But I found it interesting. They came from a nation in which there are no churches. They're not allowed. But there are students here. And through contact, one of our members, they came to our church on a, uh, they came after an Easter Sunday just to look at the church. First time they've ever been in a Christian church. Both Muslims. Then they came for our Christmas Eve service. First time they've ever been part of a Christian service. And there they heard the story of Jesus as we usually do on Christmas Eve. Uh, what a marvelous opportunity. And two of them, one of the things they wanted was Bibles. We gave them Bibles. And I think one of them is back in his home country with a Bible. How about that? See, God's word is not bound. There's a reason North Korea fears the Bible, what it's going to do. But it's going to get there and is there. Well, the power of God's word. Paul tells Timothy, you need to remember the power of God's word. I may be locked up, but God's word is not bound. Now I want to step back into verse 8 in 2 Timothy. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David 
was raised from the dead according to my gospel. You know, that, that's the great truth of our faith. The resurrection of Jesus is everything. Uh, Tim Keller, pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, I love what he says. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept everything he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, why worry about anything he said? And he's right. It changes everything. The resurrection. It is a great hope. And Paul is saying, Timothy, remember Jesus rose from the dead. He is resurrected. Now I want us to turn back to 1 Corinthians 15 because you know Paul makes mention here. Remember Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of the things uh, those that oppose Christianity will go after is the resurrection of Christ. And we see that in Paul's time it was being attacked. And listen how he opens chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, the good news which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. That's what we stand on. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he's going to give all the witnesses that saw a risen Jesus. That'll take place. Uh, Dr. Jeff Robert Robinson, editor at uh, Southern Blog, he says, if Christ is not raised, the consequences for a fallen world are catastrophic. And he is so correct. Uh, Paul is going to go on and point out that some were saying Christ isn't raised. Because in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ is not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. 
You see, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, here's what happens. It is a bleak scene. Dr. Robinson goes on to bring out eight points about that. Of course, the first one is, there's no resurrection. That means not even Christ is raised. That's the most obvious. Uh, Dr. Robinson calls that a nuclear fallout if Christ is not raised. He's right. Second, preaching the gospel is useless. Doesn't make any difference. Third, faith in Christ is worthless. Robinson says faith in a corpse buried somewhere in the Middle East will redeem no one. In fact, we'd have to take the heroes of faith of Hebrews 11 and call that the hall of fools if Christ was not raised. Fourth point, every witness to the resurrection and all preachers of the resurrection are deluded liars. You know, C.S. Lewis uh, puts that forth in mere Christianity. Either Jesus Christ is, is a a liar or a lunatic or the real deal. Of course, we know which one we're going to choose. A fifth point, Christianity, if Christ is not raised, Christianity is a fairy tale. It's no different than Pinocchio or Snow White. If Christ isn't raised, all of humanity remains captive to sin. We're still in our sin. Without the resurrection, that's where we're at. Romans 8 will never come to pass then. A seventh point, everyone who died is in hell with no resurrection of Christ. You see, with theirs, if Christ wasn't resurrected, there would be no sacrifice fitting for our sins. We would have to face God's full wrath without the cross and the resurrection. And then the eighth point, Christians are the most foolish people on earth. And that's why in verse 19, Paul says, if in this life we only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But verse 20, oh, changes. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. He is risen. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? They have none because Christ is resurrected. Now, as a redeemed people, following a resurrected Jesus, we have a grasp of the eternal that the secular world does not have. And never will. They have no concept of God's judgment. No grasp of a resurrection. And a coming judgment. I think it's back in April. reading my Bible. In Proverbs, and one verse really stood out. I've shared it a couple times before, I think on Wednesday night and Sunday night. 
But it's in Proverbs 28, verse 5. Evil men understand not judgment. But they that seek the Lord understand all things. But isn't that interesting? Evil men understand not judgment. They don't see a coming accountability, a standing before the throne of God, in which he's going to make everything right. They don't see that. But God's people do. When Paul was at Athens, he will encounter that attitude. You know, Athens is a worldly city. Kind of like modern day America. Very similar. And he's looking at all the idols they had and, and, and he found one that said to the unknown God. And if you remember, he picked that up and he began uh, telling them who that God is. And Paul, Paul, in a marvelous way, he began with the creation account in Genesis and told of a God who created all men and who seeks out men and is near men and desires all men to repent and calls them to do that. And in Acts 17 and verses 31 and 32, Paul ends his message and he says to them, because he, God, hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, Jesus, whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And in the fall, verse 32, it says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. And uh, Luke will go on to give us the names of a couple people that gave their lives to Christ, confessed faith. But notice, when Paul talked about the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They found that ludicrous. Could not believe it. Thought it was crazy, and they made fun of Paul. Tell you what, scoffers are always around. I mean, we go, you look at Psalm 1, and, and notice what, how it begins. Blessed is a man that doesn't uh, walk with certain people, doesn't... Uh, stand around certain people and doesn't sit with the scoffers. What do we find at the cross? Scoffers. People coming by, mocking Jesus Christ. If you are you, who you really are, come down from there. Prove it. Mocking him. And Paul had the same thing here hearing about the resurrection, they mocked him. Now I tell you what, scoffers are going to increase. In fact, as we get near the Lord's return, it is going to get more profound. I like what Peter tells us. He says, knowing this first, 
that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Scoffers. Now I think we're going to see more of that. I think we're going to see people challenging us like they already are, mocking our faith, telling us we're in charge, we're in control, you guys are not, and, it's good, and society's better the way we're doing it. And besides, we don't see no Jesus. Where is he? Where is this coming Lord? Well, that's the time to start hanging on to God's word all the more because he is coming. He will return. They'll mock that. Adrian Warnock in his book, Raised with Christ, he says, when we study the resurrection of Jesus, we are standing on holy ground. Warnock says, we are facing the most important question any human being will ever answer in his or her lifetime. Did Jesus rise from the dead? That's the key question. Everything hinges on our response to that simple question. In fact, I would encourage you to put that question into your arsenal of witnessing tools. To shift that message to spiritual things, to see where they're at, use that question. What do you think? Did Jesus rise from the dead? See how they answer it. That'll tell you a lot. That'll get them thinking. I think that's a profound question. Because the answer means everything. Uh, Warnock goes on to put forth six truths about the resurrection that scholars can confirm. Let me just share them. Uh, truth one, in ancient times, both the Jews and Greeks had a clear understanding that the resurrection meant a restoration of physical life after death. The Greeks believed it was impossible. That's why they mocked Paul. Some of the Jews had a belief in a bodily resurrection at the end of the age. Uh, the Sadducees did not. Pharisees did. A second truth. The earliest Christian writer Paul clearly believed in a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus and in the future for believers. A third truth. From the earliest times, Christians believed in an empty tomb and a bodily resurrection of Jesus who could be seen and touched, not just some spiritual ghost thing. Uh, number truth four, the resurrection stories of the gospel are early, credible, consistent, eyewitness-based accounts that are clearly intended to describe literal historical events. Truth five, 
Uh, the accounts of the appearances of the risen Jesus cannot be explained as some kind of fantasy hallucination. You can't use that for an argument. One person may have a hallucination. There is no such thing as a group whose hallucination. And there are hundreds and thousands of eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus. That doesn't happen. A sixth truth, the body of Jesus was really dead, not comatose. It was truly buried, and it actually left behind an empty tomb that had been guarded by soldiers. His tomb really is now as empty as the cross is. Uh, no atheist that's worth his salt in, in a debate will try to say that Jesus never existed, that he never died. That is proven historical truth. And that the tomb is empty. N.T. Wright, in his resurrection of the Son of God, he says that the empty tomb and the reports of the appearances of the risen Jesus are in the same sort of category of historical probability to be virtually certain as is the death of Augustus in A.D. 14 or the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It can be, it has that high of a historical probability. That's the evidence. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is amazing. It is also terrifying in its implications. Because as uh, Dr. Keller says, if Jesus is risen from the dead, we have to accept everything he said. That's the implication. The resurrection of Jesus is the identifying mark of us, a people who call ourselves Christians. That's the key. In fact, it is the centerpiece of our Christian faith. And that's why Paul, when he writes in Romans 10, that if you confess the, with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he was that God raised him from the dead you shall be saved that's the two conditions that he gives confession with the mouth of Jesus belief in the heart God raised him from the dead those are the essentials and Paul is saying Timothy Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Don't forget that. Stake yourself on it. What's interesting is the tense. Paul is not only saying this is a fact, a truth, but he's also saying that is an, an action completed in the past with present results. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy, Jesus is raised. Jesus is still alive. 
and Jesus is risen and present with you. Remember that. God raised him from the dead. He is present right now. Don't forget that. We don't serve just some past event or a mere historical person that's no more. We serve a risen Lord, a risen Jesus. Uh, you know, I shared it at Easter. I love the story of Lee Strobel. Uh, uh, he was a, an attorney, a lawyer. I think he worked for a, uh, the paper in Chicago in their legal department, writing legal perspectives. Uh, he was a non-believer. They said the worst thing happened, his wife got saved. And that really upset him. And, and he said, oh, I was going to overdo her faith. And he figured if I could disprove the resurrection, I could do away with her faith. And he said, I figured it would probably take me a weekend. And so he began to research and study. And two years later, he gave his life to Christ. He could not do it. The resurrection. Timothy, remember. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Why should I fear? I'm on a royal mission. I serve the King of Kings. We walk with a risen Jesus. Caring to bring you back up. Jesus paid it all. Before we step in the Lord's Supper, let's just stand and have our time of invitation. Maybe you need to come to the altar. Say, Lord, I, I need to trust in you. I need to follow you. I need to give my life to you. I want to confess my faith. And I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. Maybe you need to do that today. You come. Maybe you need to give testimony of that. Maybe you need to follow in obedience his commands. Baptism. His church family. Maybe you need to deal with something between you and God. The altar's open. You come. So we're saying Jesus paid it all.